Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of two rounds of frightening fiction about visceral visions and perilous precipitation. I'm Steve Taylor. And I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your wildest imaginations. Joining us tonight to help bring our frightening fiction to life are voice talents Greg Lewis and Adam Dergeman, but performing contestants and second round competitors in Chilling Tales for Dark Nights 2019 Evil Idol Horror Voice Acting Competition. If you enjoy their performances tonight, Visit our YouTube channel and vote on theirs and the other entries in the competition. The second round is on now, and the final few entries have been posted. But there's plenty more to come in round three beginning in April. And there's still time to vote and help decide who advances in this and the upcoming rounds. So check out our channel 
and join in the deliciously dark fun yet to come. Again, you can find Chilling Tales for Dark Nights in the Evil Idol competition on YouTube. Just search Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube on any search engine or visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click the Evil Idol link on the navigation to see a current roster, contestant profiles, and links to all of the performances thus far. We and the candidates appreciate your support. Now, get your ticket ready, take your seat in our theater of the minds, and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> Our first tale tonight is written by author Jack LaCroix and is voiced by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number 36, Greg Lewis. In it, we'll meet a gentleman who gets a glimpse of things no man was ever meant to see, a look behind the scenes of reality itself, and the truth is far more terrifying than he ever could have imagined. Without further ado, I present to you General Maintenance. I see his edges. They're there and apparent, but he doesn't notice them. He turns his head and I look away before he sees me. Riding the bus is hard. With my car in the shop, it's the only way to get around. It's not even a real bus. It's like a big family van. It's comfortable and cheap, but also brings you closer to them. Try as I might, I can't look away. It's just all so obvious, but no one seems to notice. Or if they do, they don't let anyone know. It's like we're all playing this big pretend game. I wonder what would happen if it all fell apart. I push the thought from my mind and look out the window, concentrating on the view. We approach my stop and I get off. When your sleep cycle is disturbed, even a little bit, things get strange. It starts off small enough. You're groggy, you stumble a bit. Thoughts and feelings seem misplaced. Nothing serious. Nothing you can't cure with a pill and caffeine. But the problem can get worse. And when it does, no amount of coffee or medication is going to help. 24 hours without sleep is equatable to being shit-faced. Your motor skills are gone. Every moment is fleeting, it's all bleeding into a continuous hour. Holding onto a thought is like grabbing onto a tree root when you're neck deep in a river. 48 hours without sleep, you can't even stand. Not without constant assistance, that is. Operating a car or anything other than a recliner is not a good idea. Some begin to hallucinate. Exhaustion takes most by this point. They'll be walking and then collapse, unconscious and blissfully asleep. 72 hours without at least a few hours of sleep can kill you. You can't go anywhere or do anything. Because you can't think. And because you can't think, you can't feel enough to care about anything. Except sleep. It becomes an obsession. Your body craves it and begins shutting down most non-vital mental functions. With all cohesion gone, basic communication ceases. Most people can't even lift their heads off their pillow. You become trapped. A prisoner of your own basic needs. And the hallucinations at this point are different for every person. Sometimes they persist even after you've finally rested. Even after you've talked to someone about them. And yes, even after you've convinced yourself they're not real. 
Because try as you might, there's lingering doubt. A doubt rests upon your chest as you sleep. Its mouth mutters madness, or so it seems, until you start to listen. The sleeping pills my doctor gave me didn't work. They never did. After the first month, I just stopped taking them. There wasn't any point. I tried a couple of other remedies. The same old folk medicine shit your friends tell you to do. More milk, honeycombs. I tried over-the-counter supplements. I tried yoga, meditation, and all that new age crap. But only one thing did the trick. They didn't cure me, but I took the shakes away. Smoothed the edges on other people and my own. Frank's house was just up the hill from the bus stop. Frank was 40 years old with a pot belly and constant salt and pepper stubble. He smelled like sour beer and cigarettes. But he was a nice guy. And always had a good story to tell. He looked like what every dare ad told you a drug dealer looked like. But he made you feel like his grandkid. You could definitely buy weed from worse people. It was after 5 p.m., so he was definitely home. And drunk. Well, that was fine. Just made this errand even shorter. I walked up the same cracked driveway Frank hadn't fixed since I was in high school. I used the knock he told me to use the first time I visited. I heard him stumbling to the door, cursing and spluttering. Yep, definitely drunk. Frank opened the door, face red as a fire truck. He gripped a beer in the door with one hand and a joint in the other. A huge smile cut across his face, which I returned with my own. Hey, kid. How the fuck are ya? I laughed and said, Pretty good, man. Looks like you're having a party. Hell yeah, I am. Just me and the coon and a case of beer. Hey, you wanna come in? Promise I won't card you for a can. He told this joke every time he was drunk. Which was every time I saw him. It still made me laugh, though. His inflection, coupled with that staggering happiness, made it a fresh delivery every time. <laughs> Hell yeah, man. Hey, uh, I'm still having trouble sleeping. You got any, uh, medicine? I said, stepping in the door. At this, Frank laughed long and hard. He laughed so much that his beer spilled all over the place, and he started coughing. He set the beer in a nearby table, gripping it for support. Come on, Frank. Don't have a heart attack. That'd be a fucked up thing to tell the paramedics. He stopped for a minute, tears almost in his eyes. Tell him what? He said, sweat breaking out on his head. I smirked, holding up my hand like a phone. Uh, hello, operator? Yeah, uh, my drug dealer just geeked on me. Can you guys come get him? Oh, uh, where? Uh, it's the house that smells like skunk. You can't miss it. At this, Frank laughed so hard that I really did think he was gonna die. It's a couple of beers later and Frank is sitting in his recliner. His coon dog, an old blue tick, is sitting with its head in his lap. Frank's got a smile on his face and is rubbing the dog's ear like it's his kid. I'm sitting on the couch, downing the last can in the case. I toss it on the table, burp, and look at Frank. Oh, fuck me, man. You drank all your beer. Frank gives a warm smile. Oh, yeah? I guess we did, huh? Well, that's okay. It's always better to drink with company. I nod and say, That it is. So, business? Frank pushes the dog away, wiping his hands on his shirt. He gives a single nod and says, Business indeed. He goes to the other end of the room, where a few garbage bags lay. He pushes them aside and peels back a section of carpet. Then he grips a board and pulls it up, 
putting it to the side. Frank pulls out a Nike shoebox and walks back, placing it on the table. So, you like, want more of that shit you had last time, or you want to try something new? I pause and think. This stuff works pretty well, puts me to sleep for sure, but there's a problem. Frank drops the smile and looks concerned. Problem with my shit? Say it ain't so, kid. I give a shrug and look at him. You tried it, right? I say. Frank nods, raising an eyebrow. I try everything that comes through. You know that, he says. I nod. I've got no reason to believe he's lying. So I decide to tell him the truth. I rub my palms together and say, nobody complains about seeing things, you know, nightmares, anything like that. Frank starts laughing again. Every smoker sees shit from time to time. As for the nightmares, well, I haven't heard any complaints. Just you and old farts wing to rest using it. No offense. It's my turn to laugh. Frank, it'd take a lot more than that to piss me off. But you're sure? No complaints. Nobody flipping out hard or anything. Swear on my old boy Scout Credo, he says. I nod and smile. I reach into my jeans and pull out my wallet. I tug out a few twenties and hand them over. Give me a dime. Keep the rest as a tip. Frank smiles, palms the money and bags everything up. I didn't know where Frank got his weed. I didn't care. My only concern was that it worked. A long drag with a slow building hit that cradled your brain. Then it put you to bed and tucked the world away. Except for the last few months. My doctor had warned me about trying narcotics. He said that it wouldn't start my sleep cycle. In the long run, he said, it could even build to a dependency. Then I'd be back where I was. I asked him if he'd ever had trouble sleeping his entire life. He didn't know what to say at first, but then admitted that no, he'd never had a problem. Got a full seven to eight hours a night. After that, I realized my doctor was probably full of shit. People who get rest, they never understand. They don't get the lengths you'll go. They still think it's as easy as closing your eyes and slipping away. Frank's weed allowed me to do that. Slip away from here. Slip away from a failing body in an alien world. At least it did. At first. I figured it was my body building a tolerance, so I stopped for a few weeks. I slept a total of 14 hours over days. When I started smoking again, the effects lingered into my dreams. I'd never had vivid highs before. I'd never had visions. But something changed. Either with the smoke, or with me. Sometimes when I woke up, I couldn't tell if I was still dreaming. It all seemed like a dream. A dream within a dream. That's one thing I never told my doctor. It's something I never told Frank either. And even though it could all come crashing down in moments, I rolled a joint and lit up. It was familiar, creeping and warm. My brain wrapped itself in a dense fog. I trudged my way to bed, throwing my body down upon it. I didn't even get to kick my shoes off before I blacked out. It was, without a doubt, the best sleep I'd had in months. When I awoke, I didn't feel tired. I didn't have a headache, nor did I feel any of the familiar pangs. I felt good. Rested. I smiled and rose from bed. 
I looked at my alarm clock. Not that it was going to go off. It was the weekend. But just to see how long I'd been out. I counted down the numbers. Eight hours. A full eight hours. With no nightmares. I couldn't remember the last time that happened. I walked down the hall into the kitchen. My stomach was rumbling. Munchies made me ravenous. Shoving anything down my throat would suffice. But I wanted to celebrate. Eight hours. I hoped it became a regular thing. I pulled out a pan and greased it. I turned on the heat and grabbed some hash browns and eggs from the fridge. Breakfast for dinner was my favorite. I scarfed it down and put the dishes in the sink. I opened my fridge, putting everything back. Full, I waddled into the living room. I sat on the couch, grabbed the remote, and turned on the TV. Salt and pepper filled the screen. I flipped through the settings, but to no avail. I got up with the curse and walked across the room. I checked the cables, but every one was snug. Fine. I turned off the unit. I grabbed my phone and decided to see if anyone was up. Being an insomniac means making friends with night owls. They're night timers for a reason, too. And the reason is never good. But everyone needs a friend. I spent an hour hitting people up. Through texts, through social networks. Nothing. Not a single person responded. But then I noticed something strange. Every status update, every tweeter Big Brother feeding share stomped after 7 p.m. Right after I'd smoked and went to bed, I refreshed the pages, but nothing changed. Weird. But not without plausible explanations, all of which I was too tired to entertain at the moment. Boredom was a much more immediate concern. I decided to stalk the streets for a bit. Even random strangers were better than an empty room. I grabbed my coat and told myself I'd be back in an hour. It was three in the morning. Not like I'd just stumble into someone and start talking to them. The wind whipped my hood howling down the street. Then it died just a moment later. It was fleeting. Brief. It was an odd thing. But all things can feel odd at this hour. When you can't sleep and haven't for a while, things go topsy-turvy. You cease caring how strange things are. Because you lack the energy to observe them. Except for the important things. Those become the center of your attention. A momentary roaring obsession. Then, they're gone. The passion dies, brief and fleeting. I snapped back into reality. I didn't know how long I'd been staring at nothing. I shook my head and started walking down the street, casting one glance over my shoulder. Save for the lamps and shadows, the street was empty. Even the derelicts had tucked in. The city had gone to rest. Even the familiar dirge of ambulances and cop cars had died off. The only sound was the soles of my sneakers scuffing across the walk. I was alone. Then up ahead, the back, shoulders, a head, someone else was out. They stood, hands in their pockets facing the street. Though their features were concealed, it was a person. Someone I could speak with. That's all that mattered. I weighed the chances of them being a drug dealer or a bum, or worse, and yet my feet still pushed me forward. Our distance closed. A yard away, I cleared my throat and said, Nice night, ain't it? The stranger didn't turn, didn't move an inch. They just stayed there, facing the street, 
staring into the shadows. I walked a bit closer but stayed back. I counted the number of blocks back to my apartment. If there was trouble, I could race back. Then again, maybe they just didn't want to be bothered. I pulled out a pack of cigarettes from my pocket. I flipped the top and pulled one out. I felt around for my lighter, then realized I left it with my pipe. Back at the house, several blocks away. Hey, uh, do you have a lighter? Nothing. I tapped him on the shoulder. Hey, do you? The stranger fell face forward, slamming into the pavement. I'd barely touched him. I, I was shocked. Just standing there, hands still poised. But as the adrenaline flooded my body, I noticed something. Something odder than the wind, or the feeling the hour gave. The stranger had crumbled. Pieces laid scattered about, but it looked like a pot had been smashed. A life-sized person pot, complete with clothes and hair which lay crumbled and wilted. There wasn't any blood. They'd just fallen over and broken into pieces. Just like that. I stood there, hand quivering sick still on my lips. Then I heard the scuffling of feet behind me. A hand gripped my shoulder and wheeled me around. A hand in the scuffling feet belonged to an older man. He was wearing a baby blue uniform complete with a hat. Beneath the brim a few white hairs told him more. He did not look happy. He didn't look happy at all. And as I stood there gripping a cigarette, I began to pray. This was officially the weirdest high I'd ever had. Lord, if you can hear me, I'll never smoke again. Ever. The man's grip tightened and he wagged an index finger in my face. His face contorted in rage. He spat words so hard spittle flew everywhere. What the hell do you think you're doing? You're supposed to be asleep. He made me sweep it up. Not just that one either. Dozens of them all over the city. And the entire time I'm too afraid to question him. Too afraid to talk to him. I just pushed the broom. I moved the piles of people shaped bits into a dustpan. Then I emptied them into a bag he'd brought along. I don't dare to ask questions. Not because I don't want to, but because I'm trying not to think. This is hallucination. I'm writhing on my couch or in an alleyway right now. Frank sold me some bad weed. None of this is real. It's not important. None of this is. It's around the tenth pile when he looks me straight in the eye. He just stands there, staring. He picks his cap up and scratches his brow and lets out a sigh. We've been on the fritz a lot. They all have. I... I don't know what to say to him. He sighs again, shaking his head and starts walking. I do my best to keep up. I told them your model was wrong. It was unneeded. You just caused problems. But no. Nobody wants to believe the maintenance guy. He points to a pile. I move over and begin sweeping. Like the other piles, I can catch fractures of who or what this was. The iris of an eye reflects in the moonlight. I stifle a gag and sweep it into the dustpan. The man just stands there, watching me. I walk over, ready to empty the dustpan, and he says, See these disposables? No problems. No matter what kind of shit you throw at them. They throw at themselves. But you... Everything's long-term, and that's what's really horrible about your kind. I nod and empty the pan. 
We do another 11 piles. After the last one, he smiles and adjusts his hat. I hadn't noticed until now, but he looked like the Maytag man. He claps his hands together and smiles. Great. Cleanup is finished. Holding the broom and pan, I force my jaws to move. Can I go home now? The man nods. Sure. Absolutely. He says, knocking dust off his knees. But only after you help with the restock. Then we're done. I rest my hand at my side and still clutching the broom. For a moment, I think about hitting him with it. I imagine his head exploding into shards of dust and clay. My hand grips the broom tighter, and he says, Don't even think about it. I promise you it's a bad idea. My entire body goes cold. An unsettling feeling sinks into my bowels. Do, do what? I ask, feigning innocence. He smirks, wagging a finger. He walked toward an intersection, and I followed. Restocking was even odder than cleanup. And all the while, I just did what I was told. He knew I wanted to hit him. He knew the moment I thought about it. This had to be a dream. The other explanation was inconceivable and terrifying. I just kept my mouth shut. I restocked and didn't dare to think about anything. Restocking involved going to an old battered truck and very carefully we carried bodies out. Firm, rigid bodies. Lifelike and warm, but unmoving. At least for the moment. We went back to where we'd swept. We placed a body upright at each location. Then the body came to life. and went about its business as though they'd momentarily forgot what it was doing. The maintenance man would pull out a clipboard and make a note. Then we'd move to the next location. Not even once did any of the bodies, people, for all purposes, notice us. We arrived at the corner, the last body, the one I'd knocked over. We pulled the body out of the truck and positioned it, and faced out towards the street, hands tucked in its pockets, like nothing happened. The maintenance man smiled. He clasped my shoulder again and said, All done. Ready to go home? My shift's over, I'll walk with you. I nodded, and we turned, walking the blocks back to my house. I dared to speak again then, but only later did I realize I asked the wrong questions. Who are you? The man looked at me, smirking. Oh, you know. I'm just the repair guy. I do touch-ups, cleanups, restocking. Nobody important. We walked in silence. As we neared my house, I stopped and said, This isn't real, is it? I'm dreaming. I've gotta be. The man stopped, looking me in the eye. He reached out, grabbing me by the shoulder. He studied my face for a moment, thinking of what to say. He gave a slow nod and said, Yeah, kid. It's all a dream. So go back inside and go back to bed. Okay? I bit my lip. Uh, okay. I will. As I ascended the steps, I heard him cry. Hey, kid! I turned, looking down the steps at him. He stood still, hands tucked in his pockets. Just ignore the seams. If you do, you'll sleep better, and you won't have this dream again. And even better, you'll save me a lot of paperwork. I nodded, turned my door handle, and went inside. 
I come home one day and my phone is blinking green, but I only had one call from Frank of all people. It'd been months since I've talked to him. I hit him up and we chat a few minutes. I tell him I found a solution for my sleeping problems. Then quite bluntly tell him I've quit smoking. He sounds hurt, but tells me to come over. He's got a case of beer he wants downed. I smile and tell him I'll be there this weekend. I wasn't lying to Frank, nor was I lying when I told my doctor I didn't need my sleeping pills anymore. I'd slept great the last few weeks. I'd gone back to feeling normal. Not on the fritz. I didn't pay attention to the small things, like the empty juice carton and greasy pan the morning after. But I stopped caring about the important things, too. I took a book with me whenever I rode the bus. I stood far enough away from people that I couldn't see every detail, especially their seams. After a while, I convinced myself the seams were never there, that it was all a fantasy, the byproduct of being overstressed. A few times I thought I saw something. I didn't sleep. I'd toss and turn in bed for hours. Then, after I'd given up, I'd grab my coat and step outside. From there, I'd sit and wait. I didn't care how long it took. It was all worth it. Just to be sure. Just for a solitary glimpse of that baby blue uniform. But, as with all good repairmen, he evaded me. His work went unnoticed. But all things in the city kept moving. Every model went about its work. And nobody ever stopped to think. Nobody dared to dream of what would happen if it all just stopped. If they saw the seams. And at last, it all just broke down. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed General Maintenance, as written by Jack LaCroix and performed by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number 36, Greg Lewis. Up next, we've got another tale for you, an hour-long epic saga written by Richard Saxon and voiced by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number 9, Adam Dergeman. In it, we'll meet a father and his young son struggling to survive in the wake of an unexpected Armageddon. Will he and his family ever find their way out of the paranormal precipitation that has brought the world to ruin and see the sun again? Stay tuned and find out. Without further ado, I present to you Rainfall.
I waited patiently by the riverbanks while Charlie went to relieve himself. The rain poured hard towards the poisoned earth, ripping away any life that dared settle in the toxic ground. The waters were murky, the river flowed relentlessly. They had once been so full of life, surrounded by families enjoying their picnics. Now, nothing more than a watery grave destroyed by the ever-present acid rain. It was odd, though, that despite the storm, it hadn't grown in size. It had remained the same monotonous body of water, only disturbed by the occasional piece of driftwood floating downstream. Charlie! Hurry up! It's getting dark! I yelled to my son as he tried to relieve himself behind a barren tree. I'm trying! He shouted back. I couldn't blame him. Taking a piss was harder than one would have thought while soaking wet and freezing cold. He turned silent. I decided to give him some space while I rested up by the riverbank. My body had grown frail in the past year. After supplies diminished, both food and water had become a scarce, invaluable resource. I thought it ironic that we would most likely die from dehydration, all the while soaked wet from the sulfuric piss falling down from above. My train of thought was disturbed by what seemed like an oddly shaped tree stump approaching from upriver. I fixed my attention to it as it drifted closer, and realized it wasn't a piece of wood, but a corpse. Fuck it, not again, I mumbled to myself. It had been flayed from top to bottom, not an inch of skin remaining on its bloody surface. Behind it followed another dozen dead bodies, all floating peacefully on top of the water, in various stages of mutilation. All were skinned, but some had additional avulsions, missing arms, legs, even heads that had been violently torn from some of their bodies. At that point, their identities were nothing more than a distant memory, an unimportant detail. They all seemed the same underneath their skin, and now they just added to the pile of corpses in the hellscape of a city we called home. Those people were the brave ones, the ones that tried to leave, but they had known the risk. They knew about the Guardians, yet they ventured across the border, and now they were just pieces of meat flowing with the river. The way their bodies bobbed up and down in the water reminded me, in the most morbid of ways, of times long since past, of the days before the rain. Taking Charlie to the beach with his mother, teaching him how to swim. I almost let myself smile despite the horrific sight, but I was quickly jolted back to reality as one of the corpses landed on the riverbank, fully clothed and seeming unharmed. Charlie, get over here! I called as I ran for the corpse. It was a man in his early twenties, thick, long hair and well fed. Wherever the river had taken him from, he definitely didn't belong in the city. I checked his pulse, barely finding a weak one, and though unconscious, he was definitely alive. Dad, what are you doing? Charlie asked. We've got a live one. Hand me the blanket. Charlie pulled out a soaking wet piece of cloth, 
hardly protected from the weather by the bag, but it was all we had. I wrapped the man in as well as I could and lifted him up over my shoulder. Dad, what if he's like the others? Charlie asked nervously. He can't be. He looks too healthy. Help me carry my things while I carry him. We have to get him back to shelter, fast. We rushed back towards the ruin we'd called home for the past day. It only took an hour to walk through the storm, but in my fragile state, carrying someone as heavy as that man put me on the brink of collapse. Once we finally reached the house, I dropped the man on the driest part of the floor I could find and started a futile attempt at making a fire while Charlie unpacked our things. Dad, I'm going to look for food, Charlie stated, oddly confident. He'd become a resourceful kid, but I had little hope we'd find any treasure. Whoever lived there before had to have emptied the place during the second evacuation. Don't bother, we've already looked through this place. As a stubborn kid, he reminded me of his mother, always adamant about finding solutions where there were none. Against my advice, he set off to search the house once more. After a good half an hour, I managed to get a few sparks to ignite a fire. Charlie returned just in time, holding a few cans of beans and a couple of bottles of water. Where did you find these? I asked, equally impressed and surprised. Found them under some planks in the closet, he said, smiling. People had gotten clever during the storm. As food supplies grew short and we lost contact with the outside world, people got serious about hiding their most valuable belongings. And a world where nothing ever grew, where food couldn't be made, gold and money had lost their purpose. You did good, Charlie. I'm proud of you. The man grunted, starting to wake up. What happened? He asked weakly. I knelt down beside him, trying my best to keep him calm. Don't worry, you're safe, I said. What's your name? Peter. Great. Peter, my name is John. Do you know where you are? No. I was just out walking, he groaned. Oh, my head. It really hurts. I noticed a gash on the back of his head, covered by his hair. It had stopped bleeding, but it was a nasty cut in risk of getting infected. Was I in an accident? Why am I not in a hospital? He asked. Hospital? I asked back, confused. Before he could continue, he passed back out. I tried to get him to drink some water, most of which he coughed up. Keeping him warm and hydrated was all I could do while he recovered. Asking for a hospital? He must have been pretty out of it, I mumbled to myself. I turned back to Charlie. He was enjoying his expired can of beans, our first meal in two days. Hardly a feast, but that didn't matter. We need to get some sleep soon, Charlie. We've got a long trek ahead of us tomorrow. Wait, tell me a story first, he demanded. It was a story I'd told a thousand times in the past few years, one of the times before the storm. A story about a world Charlie was far too young to remember, but he'd seen a minuscule part of it and I wanted to keep that glimpse alive, if only as a distant dream. You want to hear about the sun? I asked. He nodded happily. All right, come sit with me. Let's try and get dry before we pass out for the night. We huddled up under the blanket, almost dry from the fire, and for the thousand and first time, I told him about the past. 
You know the sky is blue? Beyond the darkness and thick clouds we see outside, there's a whole world without rain, without thunder and lightning. And in the center of it all, we have the sun. It's a bright yellow ball hanging up there, watching over us, keeping us warm. Even now it's giving us life, but it's not as strong as it used to be. It's hidden, like an invaluable treasure. Many years ago, we lived in the sun with your mother. We were so happy. I paused for a moment. Talking about my wife was a hard task, considering how we lost her. Charlie didn't remember, of course, but it stung deep inside my chest, like a cold hand wrapping around my aching heart. I sighed before I continued. She loved taking us to the beach. Endless oceans and soft sand beneath our feet. It was so warm and so bright that we had to eat ice cream just to cool down. Sometimes we even wanted to get wet. We dove into the water, but they weren't dark and grimy. They were crystal clear, blue like the color of your eyes. But it's gone now, isn't it? I'm sure it's out there somewhere, and I promise you, as soon as we can find a way past the Guardians, I'll take you there. You'll see the sun again, Charlie. I promise. I talked more about his mother until he fell asleep. As much as it pained me, I felt it important that he knew what a wonderful woman she was. As night fell over us, the storm worsened, turning from heavy rain to a murderous blizzard. As usual, I found it hard to sleep always worrying the house might collapse as so many buildings had. But Charlie slept blissfully, too young to comprehend the true dangers of the world. Dad? Dad? The man is waking up! I awoke to Charlie shaking me. Though I was usually a light sleeper, I somehow barely came to, even as Charlie yelled. Peter was coughing begging for water. After spending the whole night unconscious, he was finally coming back to it. Water, water, please, he said. I helped him sit up to drink. How are you feeling? Oh man, I'm still here? I thought it was all a dream, he said as he looked around the room. Are we in a abandoned house or something? Well, Peter, it's not abandoned anymore. I joked, stupidly trying to brighten the mood. Shouldn't I be in a hospital? He asked again. I was confused, but he'd suffered a fairly traumatic head injury, so I let the question slide while I started breakfast. I cooked up some beans and offered them to Peter. Without supplies, I couldn't do much for his wound, only observe and hope a fever didn't fester. Do you know where we are? I asked, trying to get an idea of his state of mind. I don't know. I don't remember anything other than walking around. I was heading for a picnic, I think. Then there was a, a bright flash, and next thing I know, I wake up here. A picnic? Yeah, it's been the warmest summer in years, they say. I wanted to enjoy the weather, but by the look of the rain outside, I guess that didn't last very long. Warm summer? Picnics? It had become clear how confused he really was. 
We're in Greenville, I said. Greenville? I've never heard of that name. I come from Portland. Portland wasn't anywhere nearby. Closest town over would have been Clint, but God knows what still existed beyond the boundaries of our hellhole. You have sun in Portland? Yeah, blazing, burning sun every day for the past month. For a moment, I considered the fact that the world had kept going long after our city's demise. That despite our hardship, there existed a better place where life thrived. <sighs> Yet I knew leaving would be impossible. You're telling me the world is still going? That outside of this shit, people are just living normal lives? Of course. We never even heard about a storm destroying a city. No one knows about Greenville. This is all a bit bizarre. I stood up and paced around the room. A thousand thoughts and ideas flowing through my mind. The world hadn't ended. It was only us. Only our city. Closed off from the rest of the world and left... to suffer. People couldn't leave, but then again, none had entered it either. Since the fall of our city and collapse of the colony, Peter was the first seemingly healthy human we'd stumbled across. If he could get in, then maybe, just maybe, we could get out. Dad? There's a woman outside! Charlie yelled from one of the windows, breaking me away from my brainstorm. Stay back, Charlie! I demanded as I rushed outside, Peter getting up and following suit. The rain poured as always, filling up a smaller sinkhole down the end of the street. Most houses had long since collapsed, and those that still stood were slowly being etched away by the acid. A woman stood in the middle of the street, her back facing towards us. She wore nothing more than a light dress, hardly providing protection from the horrific weather. She'd been hurt, leaving an exposed wound on her left shoulder, no longer bleeding but oozing with thick yellow pus. What the hell is she doing just standing there? Peter asked. Don't get close. Let me deal with it, I responded. I walked up behind the woman. The veins on her arm were protruding out, marking an infection that was growing up towards her neck. She was on the brink of sepsis and would soon perish. Without hesitating, I pulled her head back by her hair. As I did, I also lifted up my hunting knife and slit her throat. I'm sorry. I whispered as blood poured down her newly created orifice. She didn't even react as she quickly bled out. Seconds later, she had died. Holy shit! What the fuck did you just do? Peter yelled from the house. He stood frozen in fear, staring at my bloody hands. He didn't understand what I'd just done. It then dawned on me that Peter truly came from a better place, one without the daily horrors we faced. I set her free, I responded, already out of breath. Peter turned to run, but I gave chase. Despite my malnourished body and wasted frame, I was far faster in the rain and quickly pinned him down. Let me go! You're crazy! He yelled. Peter, calm down. I can explain this. Explain what? You just straight up murdered someone, he continued. I let him go, 
causing him to slip onto the muddy, wet ground. I kept my knife pointed at him, forcing him to stick around a little longer. You really don't know what's going on here, do you? I asked. Please, don't kill me. Just tell me what the fuck you want. Of course I won't kill you. You're not empty. Not like them. Not yet. I flipped my knife around, gesturing for Peter to take it. Now that I'm unarmed, you're going to listen. He took the knife, clutching onto it with shaking hands. It put me in harm's way, but I felt safe nonetheless. Peter wasn't from around Greenville. He'd been sheltered, safe from the nightmare that had been our lives for the past years, meaning that he still didn't have murder in his heart. Why did you kill her? He asked with a shaky voice. Because she was already dead. The parts of her that matters anyway. You notice the wound on her arm? Her clear apathy towards it? It's because she's one of them. One of the empty people. What do you mean, empty people? I walked back over to the corpse of the thing I'd just killed, turning her over to see her face. Full of scratches, even an eye missing, probably from walking into walls and debris lying around. It's the rain, I said calmly while presenting the wounds of someone who'd clearly given up on their own well-being. It changes people, hollows them out, taking away their memories, stripping them of all emotion. That's the fate of most people living in this city, and whatever they once were, accountants, mechanics, doctors, they ain't anymore. All they do now is walk around, get hurt, and die. Then why kill them? Because they're already gone, only their bodies stay behind to suffer. The least we can do for them is free them. Besides, they get riled up if disturbed. Sometimes they get violent. He'd lowered his guard by then, either from believing my story or because he simply didn't have much of a choice. Peter was trapped alongside us in the storm, unable to survive without my help, but unbeknownst to him, he could be our ticket out of there. How long have you been here? was all he asked. Seven years. Peter collapsed to the ground in disbelief, fearing he'd suffer the same fate. I walked over and put a comforting hand on his shoulder, mustering as much confidence as I could into the next few words. But now, we're all getting out of here. Together. My plan was simple enough in theory. Follow the river and retrace its path back towards where it grabbed Peter. It might have given us a safe way past the Guardians lurking in the Dark Territory. While we got ready for the day's trek, I felt hopeful. For the first time in about six years, I truly believed we stood a chance. During the early days of the storm, we'd all been a part of a mass evacuation. As the first buildings fell to the sinkholes created by the downpour, people started to panic. The evacuation itself was a shit show. Thousands of cars immediately congested on the highway. As a last resort, we attempted to flee on foot with the pitch black clouds looming above us, striking down with lightning ever so often, seeming to appear from the ground itself. My family and I were quite far in the back, and when reaching the border out of the city, we halted in our steps. 
before us lay thousands of skinless bodies. Entire families embraced in death with horrified expressions on their flayed faces. In the blink of an eye, well over a hundred thousand people had been slaughtered, repurposed for a meat wall spanning around the entire city, keeping us trapped. The mere fact that Peter got inside ignited a fresh wave of hope throughout my body. It meant that there had to be a weak spot in the Dark Territory, one where we could escape through. Charlie presented us with a few bottles of water he'd found while searching the neighboring houses. It wasn't much to keep us going, but I'd found a new source of motivation. So, we're leaving the city? Peter asked. That's right. If a better place exists, I have to get my son there. Mind me asking why you haven't left already? I mean, this place isn't all that great. Because it's dangerous, Peter. People have tried and died. What makes you so sure we'll survive then? He asked, looking at me with a mix of fear and confusion. Because now we know it's possible. You got in. That means we can get out. A few more bodies had landed on the riverbank where we found Peter the day before. Unlike him, they were beyond saving, flayed and mutilated like all the others. Peter looked at them in disbelief and disgust, unable to believe the horrors that lay before him. What happened to them? he asked. Those are the people that tried to leave, I said. And, and that's where we're heading? he continued, panicked. Listen to me, Peter. There's no food, no water, nothing left in the city for us. We either take our chances here, or we die from thirst and starvation in the city. Remember that you made it in here, and I promise you a better chance if we keep going. We followed the river upstream, half a day's trek just to get to the bridge. The rest would be spent crossing it. The bridge was the name given to a collection of sinkholes spanning around the city. 96 miles wide and two miles across, a place of destruction and almost impossible to pass. A section of the sinkholes had been covered in various debris, cars and corpses giving it the unfitting name, filling it to the brim to the point we could cross. Hence, a bridge. Despite its dangerous content, it would be our safest route to the other side. Of course, the empty people lurked around the bridge as well, but they were different. Those that existed here still had the basic instinct of escaping, making them far more terrifying than anything found within the city limits. I let my mind wander as we walked slowly by the river. The monotonous flow of water against the harsh tickle of rain was somehow soothing. It brought back memories of the second evacuation and the first empty people. I saw an image of myself holding on to my three-year-old son with one arm and my wife with the other. We were crushed in the middle of a panicked crowd when my wife Loretta suddenly let go. I tried so desperately to grab hold of her again, but she simply stood there, letting the crowd trample her down as we were pulled away. She was left behind, one of the first people to forget themselves, to hollow out and become one of the empty people. Most people could feel it coming on. They knew that they were about to turn, but not her. For whatever reason, 
It happened within seconds. Following the failed second evacuation, we searched for weeks. Hundreds of colonists looking for their loved ones, but to no avail. Loretta was more than likely one of the empties that had wandered into harm's way, dying from their own neglect. Dad? Dad? What are you doing? Charlie asked as I snapped back to reality. I had stopped moving, lost in my own thoughts, unable to react with the outside world. Dad? John? Peter chimed in. Finally, I managed to get myself going. I'm sorry. I just needed to catch my breath. I lied. Let's keep moving. Another hour and we finally reached the bridge. Before us, we saw dozens of endless collections of sinkholes, partially filled with solid debris. Dozens of bodies littering the pits among a few surviving stragglers. This isn't exactly what I had in mind when you said we had to cross a bridge, Peter said. The river ran straight through the sinkholes, dragging part of its foundation with it. We had to keep a certain distance away from the river, lest we get dragged away with everything else. This is more like a hole, if I'm entirely honest, he continued. I kneeled down beside my son. This would be his first time crossing the bridge without my help. On each prior cross, he'd been too young, and I carried him on my back or had him wait back at the colony. Now that the colony was gone, and I was too weak to carry him, he'd have to manage on his own. You ready to do this, Charlie? I asked. He nodded, as brave as he'd ever been. Listen, there's bound to be a bunch of empty people stuck in the debris. It's going to be dangerous. These empties are different from the ones we've seen in the city. They'll call out for help, they'll beg and bargain, but don't let that fool you. There's no fear, sadness, nor anger in their voices. There'll be no urgency even as they lay there bleeding out. So whatever happens, do not approach them, I said, looking back and forth between Peter and Charlie. They both nodded, confused but diligent. We tied a rope between the three of us, walking ten feet apart would ensure that if one of us fell into a pit or sank into the unstable ground, the other two could pull them back up. Charlie, being the lightest, walked at the back of our small group, while I led the charge. It only took a couple of hundred feet before we saw one of the empty people trapped inside a crushed car. Emaciated and pale, probably stuck there for the past year, waiting for someone to pass. It pleaded and begged for us to help, asking in the most apathetic voice possible, completely rid of any emotion. Don't go to the other side without me. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. It said. Another one we passed had just impaled itself on a piece of debris, bleeding profusely. Within an hour, it would be dead, yet it kept talking to us as if nothing had happened. Its words making sense, but all emotion behind them, non-existent. Hey, take me with you. Please, please, please. It doesn't hurt, I promise. It doesn't hurt. I'll be okay. I'll be okay. Peter looked with concern at the trapped creatures, worried and sorry about its pitiful state. Let it be, I ordered. 
We can't help them. He complied and we kept walking. John, how about you tell me how all this happened? Peter asked. I shrugged off his curiosity. It wasn't a memory I wanted to dig into. We're better off focusing on the rough terrain. We ain't got time to talk. I shot back. All right. How about a short summary then? I sighed, already out of breath from the rough trek across the bridge, ignoring him initially, but he kept prying. He wasn't going to let it go. They said the storm would pass in the week, I finally uttered after about the tenth time he asked. We did as we were told, holding up inside our homes, stocking up on food and water as the worst passed. Only it never did and after a month of the acidic rain etching away at our once friendly city, buildings started collapsing, sinkholes swallowed up the roads, and people died. I sat down on a rock, trying to catch my breath. Talking while wandering was a painful task. Then the people started acting strange. We'd find men, women and children just wandering through the streets at night, wearing nothing more than their nightgowns to protect them from the pouring rain. They had this look in their eyes, as if they weren't aware enough to care about their surroundings. Sometimes they'd even get hurt, break a leg or rupture an artery, yet they just kept walking aimlessly around, ignoring our pleas to just come back inside. Peter stepped out in front of me. That's what happened to your colony? He asked. Our colony was formed after the first six months. We gathered as many resources as we could, non-perishable foods and water. Since only a thousand people survived the first two evacuations, we'd figured we'd be fine for a few years at least, but the rain kept pouring. We'd lost contact with the outside world and anyone brave enough to venture into the dark zone ended up dead. We were trapped, scared and running out of supplies faster than anticipated. You want to know what happens when there's no system to keep people in place? Peter shook his head. I got back up to my feet and we kept moving. Well, let's say the empty people weren't the only ones losing their sense of self. A small group of empty people started getting close. They'd miraculously navigated across the bridge without getting impaled or hurt by the various debris. They kept mumbling nonsense as they walked past. The only word I could make out was salvation. Let him be, I demanded. Peter kept inquiring about our situation. So you've been stuck here for the past seven years, he asked. That's right, seven years since the storm began in 2020. Peter stopped dead in his tracks, halting our progress. What the hell do you mean, 2020? The year? What else? I asked, confused. You're saying the storm started seven years ago in 2020, making the current year 2027? By my estimation, yeah. It's been a bit hard to keep track, but I'm pretty sure we're either in July or August. Why do you ask? John, it's only 2019. I chuckled at the absurd statement. <laughs> Listen, Peter, you hit your head pretty hard. It's understandable that you're confused. Look at me, John. I was born in 1995. Do I look like I'm mid-30s? He asked. He didn't. He looked like someone in their early 20s, just like I thought when I first found him. 
Yet it made no sense. If it truly was that long ago for him, then it meant he'd traveled not only from outside, but from the past. You really think you've traveled through time? I asked, sounding more condescending than intended. Well, is that any less likely than a storm lasting seven years? People turning empty and mysterious guardians hindering any escape? He asked back. Despite my disbelief in his statement, he had a point. But that means... I stopped. Means what, John? It means the world is truly gone. Then how did I get here? He said, getting more agitated by the minute. I... I don't know. But the plan stays the same. We keep moving across the bridge. Towards what? Certain death? To be flayed by the guardians like that pile of bodies back at the river? I don't know! I shouted back, loud enough to attract the attention of the passing empty people, most stuck in debris by then. Peter got quiet. But do you have a better plan? There's no food left, no water, nothing. You want to go back? We'll die before we find shelter again. So my plan remains. We're following the river, and while we do, we desperately pray to any god you can think of that we somehow manage to find out how the hell you ended up here. He just stared at me. Seven years, Peter. My son grew up not knowing the warmth of the sun, and I'll die before he gets stuck here for the rest of his life. While I frantically yelled in anger, one of the empty people got close enough to grab Charlie. I had lost focus and just stared at him in complete apathy. For a moment, it didn't matter what happened next. Help me. Help me. Help me. Let's stick together. 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 It begged as it pulled him towards a pit. I just stared. Dad! Help me! Charlie cried, but I stared on, unable to make myself move. John! What the hell are you doing? Peter shouted as he ran over to help Charlie. Finally, I snapped back to reality, immediately pulling my knife out pushing the creature away from my son while impaling it through an eye. As it fell over dead, Charlie cried out for the first time in years, and Peter turned to me with an angry expression on his face. John, why did you just stand there? He shouted. I... I don't know. I rushed over to console Charlie, but he pushed me away. I just lost myself from, for a moment. I... I I can't explain it. We didn't have time to discuss it. The darkness loomed over us as nightfall approached. After catching our breath once more, we rushed the last few hundred feet across. We desperately needed to find shelter before another blizzard set in. No sooner had we set foot on the edge of the bridge before a brilliantly bright light appeared on the horizon. It was unlike anything I'd seen since the beginning of the storm appearing as a blue sun lighting up everything around us. The light looked cold as ice, yet it warmed us more than anything had for the past seven years. The river stretched all the way towards the light, and I knew in my heart that Peter had somehow come through that. Is that the sun? Charlie asked hopefully. No, that's something else entirely, I responded 
baffled by the magnificent sight. How far away is it? Peter asked. I tried to the best of my ability to judge the distance, but the shine of the light made it hard to get a clear view. If it lay just by one of the bodies of water making up the river, it would be another day's trek, meaning we'd have to venture through the dark territory. I'm guessing another day and a half's walk, I said, finally. They both seemed hopeful. The terrain itself wasn't as rough as the rest of the trip, but I was beginning to realize I might not make it that far. In any case, we still need to find shelter. We're not traversing the dark territory at night. We searched for an hour before finally finding a partially collapsed warehouse. Not a great cover for the oncoming blizzard, but it was the best that we could do in the outskirts of town. I lit a fire for the night and shared the last can of beans. I'm sorry about earlier, I said to Charlie. It's okay, Charlie said, half asleep. Can you tell me a story? That night, as Charlie fell asleep, for the first time, I told him about a story of the future, not the past. I love you. Be good, kid. I remained awake, staring into the embers as the blizzard raged outside. My mind wandered. I tried to keep it focused, but to no avail. I saw images of my wife, memories of digging sandcastles on a beach with Charlie, flashes of wine and dances, the past of a better life. I was tired, worn down to the bone, hollowed out by the rain like so many people before me. In a matter of hours, my mind would be lost and my son would be left alone fending for himself with someone who clearly didn't belong. Without waking the other two, I sat down to write the final part of my journal. I've kept track of most events during the past seven years, but I feel like the last few days are the most important. I'm leaving this to you, Peter. When you find me empty in the morning, I need you to take Charlie with you across the dark territory. Bring him to the light and cross over to a better world. You might even have a chance to stop this all from happening. Charlie, I love you. Be good and live a happier life in the sun. I wish I could be there with you up until the end, but my time is up. You deserve so much more than this world has given you. And now you might finally have it. Good luck to you both. John. When the morning rolled around, John had left, either to keep us safe or because he'd hollowed out and gone to face the rain one last time. He pulled me out of the river, he saved my life, and in return, I promised to keep Charlie safe. He left behind his journal, which is what you've all just read, and while there's a lot more to Charlie and my story, I felt this should be what I post first. John deserved that much. I awoke in the early hours of the following morning. Charlie was frantically calling out for his father. John had left his bed and seemingly vanished, leaving his journal placed neatly beside my bed. We searched the warehouse before I even checked what John had written, but he wasn't inside. I picked up the journal and opened it. I only needed to read the first few lines to realize what had happened. John had turned empty. 
and left instructions to me, telling me to save Charlie. Dad! Charlie yelled out as he stormed out the door, back into the rain. John was standing motionless outside, staring towards the horizon. He didn't even react to Charlie's plea for attention. Dad! What are you doing? He continued on the verge of tears. He walked towards John, though whatever John had been just a day before had been washed away by the heavy rainfall. Charlie, stay away from John! I yelled as I ran over to grab him. Let me go! He said as he tried to wriggle himself loose from my grip. Dad! He cried. John hadn't moved, not even acknowledging our presence. No, 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 no! He kept screaming as I pulled him back inside the warehouse and shut the door. He was incredibly strong for a ten-year-old, but I kept him at bay while he cried and punched me. He's gone, Charlie. John is gone. No, he isn't. He can't be. He promised. He continued, sobbing incomprehensibly. I held him tight and let him cry it out, and he eventually stopped resisting my grip. The one person in his life had been taken away for no reason other than bad luck. Simply wasted away in a world where humanity became little more than a faint memory. Charlie sat beside the fire, reading John's journal. He silently sobbed as he turned the pages. He'd learned to read from his father, and he'd written the journal as a reminder of what they had gone through, in hopes that one day someone would save them. I'm sorry about your dad, Charlie. He didn't respond. I packed what little things we had into John's bag. We had to keep walking while we still had the energy. Without food nor water, this would be our last day, whether we found salvation or not. When we finally got back outside, John had wandered off. I had the thought of killing what remained of him in the back of my head, to free him like he'd taught me, but now I wouldn't get that chance. Thanks for saving me, John. You were a good man, I mumbled to myself. The light shined bright in the horizon, reflecting off the millions of raindrops, appearing in endless beams shooting through the air. Despite the cold blue color, it made me feel warm to once again wander through light, to once again see the landscape in front of me. Do you want to talk about it? I asked Charlie. He looked at me for a brief moment and shook his head. The river got wider as we proceeded. In the distance, something that looked like a wall appeared, spanning endlessly in each direction around the city. What's that wall? I asked. It's the flesh. That's where the dark territory begins, he responded quietly. Faint clicking sounds could be heard in the distance, distorted echoes coming from whatever lurked in the rain. A few empty people wandered alongside us on our journey, too many to kill, and they seemed oblivious to our company. They had come from all directions, but each were pulled towards the light. On the road, several emaciated figures lay motionless. They had become too weak to move. Only their blinking eyes proved that they were still alive. When we got close enough to see the wall, I could make out figures. Limbs, viscera, and torn flesh made out the majority of the wall. 
Charlie barely acknowledged the horror before us, unafraid and apathetic to it. If he was just a brave kid or on the brink of turning empty, I couldn't tell. Some empties were trying to climb the wall, but its slippery surface caused them to slip and sink into the meat-filled mass. The only opening was by the river. Piles of dead people littered the water, but the wall wasn't as thick around it. We could pass easily enough. As we walked around the riverside, the clicking got louder. It was rhythmic and split up into intervals. Though I couldn't exactly determine its origin, it came from several directions, as if something was communicating. On the other side of the wall, we were faced with a new type of nightmare. The entire land had turned into an impossible fleshscape, with what appeared as muscles, tendons, and blood vessels covering every inch of its surface. A single empty person made it above the wall and wandered across the flesh. Tendrils entangled in vessels reached out from the ground and grabbed onto the empty, bringing them down to the ground, slowly consuming and merging them with itself. How are we going to get through there? I asked. Charlie didn't respond. He simply climbed down from the wall, wielding his knife. A few tendrils grew from the ground, wrapped in veins, but Charlie slashed at them with his knife, causing blood to spurt out briefly before they fell to the ground. Charlie, what are you doing? They can't get us if we keep moving, he said. You've been here before? I asked. One time. I climbed down onto the flesh-covered surface. It felt warm to the touch, gently bouncing my feet with each step. A tendril reached for me, and I slashed it off with ease. It was slow for sure, and as long as we kept wandering, we'd seemingly be safe. The light was still a few hours away, but it had grown to a tremendous size, a brilliant blue globe lighting our path to salvation. We kept close to the river. If John had been right, we simply needed to follow it all the way to the light. Every now and then, a body limb or viscera was pulled from the fleshscape and floated downstream towards the city. The clicking was getting closer, but I was starting to realize that it didn't come from any direction in the distance. It was coming from underground. That's the first time I noticed how the ground twitched and contracted in response to our steps. It hadn't occurred to me in the early stages of the Dark Territory, but now it was impossible to ignore. Charlie, hold up. What? We both stopped walking, but the twitching continued, going from minor ticks to violent spastic contractions. Some muscle fibers in the ground opened up beneath our feet. We pulled away towards the river. Watch out, I yelled. What is happening? He answered back. A tall figure dug itself up from the ground, towering 15 feet tall two legs and a torso, but without arms nor a head. Its skin seemed charred black, vesticles covering the majority of its surface. It emitted the clicking sound we'd heard, calling out for the tendrils which emerged from the ground in response. It held onto the ground with its legs, claws sticking out from all sides of the stumpy appendage. Run! I ordered. I grabbed Charlie and we headed straight for the river. It was the only place I could think to hide, 
and since the flesh didn't grow much into the water, I hoped it couldn't sense us there. The creature wandered across the meat-covered land, turning its charred torso around while searching for whatever had awoken it, looking for us. Beneath the pitch-black skin of the creature, a couple of lids tore apart, revealing a single, completely white eye with a minuscule pupil darting rapidly around in its socket. We lowered ourselves into the water, hoping the creature wouldn't notice us. As long as we didn't touch the flesh, it couldn't sense us. What the hell is that thing? I whispered. It's a guardian. The commotion had attracted a couple of empty people, both relatively unharmed even on the fleshscape. The ground twitched beneath their feet as they approached the creature. It observed them for a brief moment before grabbing one of them with a foot, and in a single swift movement it tore the empty person in half. Its leg then started expanding, and its flesh wrapped around the half it still held onto. Within a second the skin had been seared off by the acid seeping out of one of the bursting vesticles on the creature's skin, after which it dumped the flayed person onto the ground, letting the flesh fuse together. After less than a minute, both bodies had been flayed and consumed, and the creature seemed… content. But the original disturbance caused by us still lingered on its mind. It kept searching while we hid in the river. We must have hung onto the edge of the river for an hour while the creature searched, all the while its eye remained open, unblinking, desperately searching for intruders. After a while, the clicking stopped, and the tendrils sunk back into the ground. After the last tendril disappeared, the Guardian closed its eye and simply started sinking back into the ground, leaving the surface monotonous and empty once more. Relieved, I let out a sigh. The river, despite its strong current, would be our safest option proceeding ahead. All right, we better keep moving. We can't walk on land anymore. Those things can sense our touch. Charlie nodded, shivering from the freezing water. But while the fleshscape stretched endlessly far, impossible to traverse, the light itself was close, within reach. If we kept moving, we'd be there in an hour. I dug out the rope from our backpack and tied it between myself and Charlie. The water wasn't particularly deep near the edge but sudden surges in the current could easily sweep one of us away, especially a small, malnourished kid like Charlie. I'm really cold, he said. We're almost there, Charlie. Can you hang on for just a bit longer? I I'll try. We walked in the knee-deep freezing water, trying our best to avoid small flesh appendages that had grown into the side of the river. Any touch would alert the Guardians, and if they saw us, we wouldn't stand a chance. Just a bit further. We're almost there, I said. Charlie started slowing down. As skinny as he was on the brink of starvation, he simply couldn't retain much heat. I'm tired, he said. Don't give up, Charlie, I begged. I felt him tug on the rope behind me. He had almost come to a complete standstill. Without any other option, I lifted him up and put him on my back. 
We were so close. The light shined brighter than ever before, and it warmed me up to the point where I barely felt the freezing temperature of the water anymore. Why didn't it work for Charlie? Charlie, we're almost there. He didn't respond. He'd fallen unconscious from the cold and exhaustion. Charlie! I upped my pace, but the current had gotten stronger and the end of the river finally met us. What lay before us was a massive lake, covered by a thin layer of what seemed like human skin, stretched so thin it had become partially transparent. The blue light hung a few feet in the air on the other side of the lake, appearing as a massive globe of ice. Charlie, do you see that? We're almost home. He didn't respond. We had to tread back onto land to get around the lake. If not, we'd end up enveloped in the mesh of skin that was covering the waters. Only a few hundred yards to safety. I stepped onto the riverbank, and the ground immediately twitched in reaction. I took another step, causing a tendril to emerge from the ground and reach for me. It was much thicker than the ones we'd faced before, and I only had one hand free while trying to keep Charlie on my back. I swung with all my force and cut through it. The ground shook as the muscles moved apart, leaving a large gash in the ground from where the guardians could emerge. Three pulled themselves up through the flesh and gave chase after us. They were tall, much larger than before, but to our advantage, they were also slower. Even with Charlie on my back, I could outrun them, but not for long. Several tendrils extended from the ground, not trying to grab myself, but going directly for Charlie. A few clung on, and I swung at them, severing a few. On my second swing, one grabbed a shaft of my knife, cutting it into itself, but causing me to let go of it. Hang on, Charlie! I yelled as I ran, my legs almost bursting from the effort. The guardians seemed bizarrely slow, quickly giving up on the chase as we got closer to the light. I peeked back at them, and they seemed almost frozen, as if covered in ice emerging from the blue light. Despite the guardians struggling, the tendrils kept growing in number and size, grasping for us as we spurted over the fleshscape. Charlie started coming too as we got closer to the glowing globe. He moaned quietly in agony. The light! It hurts! He called out as we got closer. It was horribly bright, almost blinding, yet nothing could compare to the beauty, its magnificent contrast to its horrible surroundings. Whatever pain it caused Charlie, it was better than staying behind to be flayed by the monsters. One of the tendrils caught my leg, causing me to stumble to the ground and dropping Charlie. Another grabbed him where he lay on the ground. I kicked and tore at its flesh. Finally, it let me go, but it had grabbed Charlie around his neck choking away what little life he had left. Even with all my force I couldn't tear it away, and as a last resort I simply bit it. A metallic taste flooded my mouth as blood spurted from the twisted appendage. I spit it out and lift Charlie off the ground. My muscles burned and my joints ached, but I kept moving, dragging my beaten body across the ground. I got a bit further before collapsing. The light hung just a few feet above us, but I couldn't bring myself back to my feet. I reached out my hand, trying to grab the light, and suddenly, I felt the ground give in beneath me. We were lifting up towards it. We made it, Charlie, I said, 
on the brink of passing out. The blue light started enveloping us. All the pain and fear that had filled my body started to vanish. I looked for Charlie. I held on to his hand, but I couldn't see him anymore. Charlie! The last thing I heard was a scream of agony coming from Charlie. He was falling back through the light towards the fleshscape. I frantically tried to grab onto him, but the light was too bright. I couldn't see. I couldn't hear nor feel at all anymore. It was as if the world had been erased and myself with it. Then I fell. Even now, I can't tell how far I fell. It could have been a few feet, it could have been miles. All I remember was hitting the ground hard, my body breaking as I landed in a different world. I lay motionless, unable to breathe. As my vision returned, I saw a brilliant blue sky, cloudless, only decorated with our yellow majestic sun. I laughed. I was back. I was safe. After a horrific ordeal, I could finally rest, and with that, I let myself pass out. They found me laying in the middle of a football field. Two broken legs, a few ribs and multiple vertebrae. Bruises, torn ligaments, and a punctured lung. I had been beaten up quite badly by the fall, but despite it all, I'd survived. Charlie, we made it, were the first words I spoke as I woke up a couple of days later in the hospital. Who's Charlie? The doctor asked as he checked my vitals. The kid. I came... The, the kid I came through the portal with. Where is he? Where's Charlie? The doctor laughed. Your name is Peter Matthews, correct? I nodded my head pain radiating down my spine. I asked him again about Charlie, mumbling something about the portal and asked if the rain had come yet. I was high on pain medication so the doctor initially shrugged off my weird questions. Charlie never came with me through the portal. I remembered his screams of agony, letting go of his hand and it dawned on me that he'd stayed behind, left to suffer in the rain. They'd found me alone. A witness said I simply appeared in the middle of the field. According to my injuries, they believed I'd fallen quite a distance, but from where, they couldn't tell. At the moment of writing this, I'm still cooped up in the hospital. I tried searching for John and Charlie online, but without their last names, it's a futile task. Not to mention that Greenville is an extremely generic town's name. I owe them both my life, and in return, I ended up losing them. So, I'm writing this in their honor. They gave me a second chance at life, returned me to my own life, though if the storm truly begins in 2020, we might not have much time left. John, if you read this, believe me when I say this is going to happen. Get out of Greenville. Save your family while there's still time. I hope you enjoyed Rainfall, as written by Richard Saxon and performed by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number 9, Adam Dergeman. 
Don't forget, all of tonight's performances were featured in the second round of this year's 2019 Evil Idol Horror Voice Acting Competition, hosted on our official Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel now, with its third round beginning in April. If you enjoyed the performances tonight, visit our YouTube channel and vote on theirs and the other entries in the competition. Again, you can find Chilling Tales for Dark Nights in the Evil Idol competition on YouTube. Just search Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube on any search engine, or visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click the Evil Idol link on the navigation to see a current roster, contestant profiles, and links to all of the performances thus far. We and the candidates appreciate your support. We'd also like to remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave us a five-star review and a kind word, and to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure as always. I'm so glad you were able to join us tonight. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Roshek. Logo by Craig Roshek. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to us. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. We'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that 
and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. 